Um, so the first question that I had was the, tell me the story of how you came to be a teacher. So what I was going to do was just kind of start from the beginning of how it was for me and then... Okay. Yeah. So... No, it sounds good. I mean, you know a lot about, uh, about that and for, for me as well because we were there together when we, when, when we became yeah, so teachers, that, ironically. That's something that people should realize is that um, we both started teaching at the very same time um, mm. in very different circumstances. So, I mean, That's I true. can talk to my circumstances because uh, mm. I started teaching at the Callan School of English in Spain, in Valencia, and I think I had a, a really, it was really lucky, I had a really good deal because I, I got a considerable amount of training uh, to begin with, and before we, before, we came, we just did that um, short like weekend course. It was kind of, in my mind, teaching wasn't the plan. Um, it was more of a backup. Mm. Um, but yeah. once I started doing it, I started to actually really enjoy it. Uh, and yeah. with the, the Callan School of English, um, why I say it's very different to your experiences was uh, with Callan School of English, as you found out that it, it, it's a direct teaching method so they have their own kind of um, style of doing things where it's uh, people refer to it as kind of parroting but I think there, there was a lot more of an art to it where you're asking these questions and if they can't give you the stock answer or give you an answer uh, you know you make them follow the answer from the book and I, you know, a lot of people had the mentality that that was it, but I think once you kind of become, you, I started to move away from that, and I would give them the stock questions, or but I'd kind of add my own twist to them, and you know, kind yeah. of keep them on their toes. So that yeah. was where I first started, and yeah. I thought that that was, if I was to start teaching again, I would start teaching with that because it got me, it, it was a. Uh, a crutch in a, in a way because it, everything was done for me. I just had to kind of perform, mm. um, so it was a lot easier for me because I didn't have to think about lesson plans as much uh, mm. or kind of a, a whole bunch of stuff that I realised going forward. You know, especially after doing the CELTA, which I'll get into later, um, mm. was so much more. It was kind of a stripped down version of teaching in a way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> I think you made a few interesting points there. I, I think, um, I think, <clears throat> let's say the majority of, uh, I don't even know if it's the majority of them, but let's say uh, a lot of English language teachers might sort of stick their nose up at the direct method, you know, oh, it's from the early 1970s and it's speak and repeat and all this kind of stuff. But um, or what, I, what I know about it, I mean, first of all, you know, when I was first learning Spanish, I did a lot of learning uh, audio-linguistically, you know, Pimsleur and uh, those kind of stuff. But that's not a far cry away from the direct method. You know, it's, you know, it, a lot of it is, you know, translate this sentence into Spanish and then you listen and then you copy the pronunciation of how it's being said by the native, right? So, I mean, that's a, it's got elements of the direct method in there. And that really gave me a good base for my Spanish, you know. Without that springboard, that six months of audio-linguistic training, 
I think I would have really struggled with the Spanish uh, when, when we got to Spain. But that was just enough of a start to really get me going with it. And I owe a lot to that. And, you know, I've met, um, I met some of uh, your students from Callum uh, in Valencia. And they only had good things to say about the Callum method. Like for them, it was like it was the one place where they knew exactly what they were going to get. You know, if they went to some other school, you know, yeah, they might get a good teacher, but they might also get someone who's sitting on their hands and, you know, just kind of uh, talking to them, you know, which is, it can be a viable method when it's done right. But it can also be a way of slacking off, can't it? You know, it can also be a way of just getting to the front of the class and being the entertainer teacher who doesn't actually teach anything, right? Uh, so, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, I think there's definitely there's definitely things to be taken from it. It's definitely effective. And this idea that it's something that you pretty much have these lessons in your head, you know, so you can kind of fall back to it. You know, it's one of those things that if you were doing like a let's say a um, a standard CELTA class, you know, a a, a, a sort of um, uh, what do you call it? Presentation, practice, um, production type thing, right? a PPP standard CELTA, which is actually, I think, is a lot more complex than sometimes because people turn their nose up at PPP these days as well. And it's like, hang on, I didn't mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I know what you mean by that, yeah. There's, well, there's many different ways of doing it, isn't there? It doesn't yeah, have to be, it doesn't have to be like, to it doesn't have to be like, today we're doing the present perfect haul. You know, yeah. you, can, you can do it other ways. But anyway, um, you know, yeah, let's say you're doing a lesson like that and you've got 10 minutes at the end. Someone who's been trained as a Callan teacher can throw in 10 minutes of direct method at the end, just like that, right? Yeah. Um, so it's... The direct method as well, though, I, I, I agree when you, you know, when you talk about uh, learning Spanish, um, it's great for beginners. If you don't, if you know absolutely zero English mm. and you want to get a good base yeah. really fast, mm. it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I wish there was something out there for all the other different languages that I've tried to learn. Um, yeah. Once you kind of get past when you're starting to touch intermediate, then you know you you kind of need to inject your own personality uh, into mm. it in a way. Um, yeah. But, you know, touching back on learning Spanish, um, one of the other ones that we, we did poems that, uh, Michelle Thomas. Mm. What, actually, Michelle Thomas is one of the people that I, learn, I have learned a lot from uh, as a teacher. Um, and I applied a lot of what he was doing because um, he wasn't mm. quite Pilmsler. He was doing repetition, but he was also kind of like mnemonics. There was like lots of, he got you That's thinking right. about it in different ways. And yeah. I would kind of change and go away from the direct method and kind of add that sort of stuff in there where, you know, I would, I because I've already got in my head the previous lessons that I've known these students have been practicing in the Callum book. So I can throw in the different vocabulary and throw in different questions that aren't on the book, but I'm fairly confident that they'll be able to answer it because I know yes. that they know the answer. So it's just me kind of like poking yep. poking the answer out of them. Yeah, um, yeah. Michelle Thomas is, was 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 definitely an interesting one. I mean, at the end of the day, he was a guy who had uh, um, Hollywood celebrities playing him, you know, thousands of dollars an hour from class. So there's a reason for that. Um, you know, he, he uh, like you say, he used a lot of mnemonics. <clears throat> now, I do think 
mnemonics are great. They do have their limitations. Uh, they require a lot of creativity to create them. I like them. I use them. But um, sometimes, you know, if you sit down, sometimes you just don't feel creative. And you try and come up with some mnemonics for something, and it's just not working, you know. Oh, so It's just another yeah. tool in the toolbox. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing he, he, I remember he focused a lot on was uh, this idea of the students being very relaxed, right? Remember, he had that as like a thing. And um, I remember quite liking that at the time and thinking, that's got to be a thing, right? Um, and later, when I went on and did the diploma, um, I learned um, it's, it was part of a huge method in the 1970s, again, called Suggestopedia, which is a really bizarre name for a teaching method, but that's what it's called. And it was um, Suggestopedia is actually quite descriptive about how relaxation is achieved. <laughs> so, you know, they have, you have the students in armchairs yeah. and you have plants you have to have plants and you play baroque music in the background specifically baroque music which yeah which is a I bit just, this sounds familiar uh are, did they did they touch on that in Seltzer or something did yeah they, they probably touch on they probably touch on touch on uh, all of the 1970s because there's three big ones in the 1970s that kind of came together and became communicative language teaching right from the from the 1990s onwards which was suggestopedia and then there was one called community language teaching, which is like you put the students in a circle, just let them have a conversation. And the teacher just kind of hops around in the background and occasionally like throws in some new vocabulary or throws in another discussion question or whatever. It just basically keeps the conversation. Yeah, they call the teacher. It's the idea of the teacher as, as a facilitator or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, Suggestopedia was one of them. So maybe you've, yeah, maybe you've come across it in the cell and it's that. Like you say, it's that idea of relaxation. And I do think it's a big thing because it's a thing that can be, um, I don't think it's something that, you know, can magically help you learn quicker. But what it is, is it's something that uh, um, reduces the possibility of or eliminates the chance that a student is going to develop with these sorts of um, like stress-based hang-ups about language learning, which can be a big problem. And, uh, you know... A huge... Um a huge point that I, I think gets missed a lot with the teaching, um, yeah. but not, not a lot. It doesn't get missed, but it's not something that people are conscious of per se. For example, you know, when I teach IELTS, um, I try to make the classroom and make it so this is kind of how it's going to be in the IELTS exam. So oh. that they're used to it, you know, like they're accustomed because you kind of feel a bit yeah. rigid, you're feeling a bit uncomfortable well you there's this there's this whole idea with learning and with not not learning with memory is that memory is partly based on emotions so if you are feeling yes. happy you remember more happy stuff you feel yeah. sad you remember more sad that basically that yep. sort of thing so that's right. for me it makes sense that if you're relaxed, that's when you're relaxed. When you're having conversations, that's how you want to be when you're learning. Yeah. If you're stressed, you know, you're going to be only able to talk in a different language if you're stressed. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the amount of people I, um, I come across, students who've been studying for a long time, and you can see they've got these hang-ups. They start getting themselves more stressed when they're, when they're trying to produce stuff. And you know that's got to come from stuff in their past. You know, it's got to come from a teacher who's putting pressure on them, or they were, you know, they were talking to English speakers who just shut off, you know, because they were taking too long. You know, negative experiences. You know, and um, I certainly had some of these as a language learner, and I know 
that you had some of these learn in Spanish, right? Because for a time, you kind of like, it almost like push, you pushed it away, right? Because it just became such a negative experience to keep diving into it. And that's why one of the things that I really focus on these days in my teaching <clears throat> is this idea of sustainability and um, the idea of, um, you know, you always want to be doing sustainable activities. It's not about hitting your head against the wall as hard as you can over and over again until you finally learn the language. It's about finding things that you actually enjoy doing and then just let it build up, you know, let those things build up. Okay, you know, because one of the things I really enjoyed in Spain was the intercambio de idiomas, right? The little language exchanges. I loved it. It was great fun. And, um, you know, as a result, I kept doing it, meeting new people. Some of them were crazy. Some of them were all right. You know, um, but um, it was it was fun. And, you know, back in the day, I used to think that the genius of Intercambio de Idiomas was the fact that I was like writing it down and then they'd write down my mistakes and then we'd kind of teach each other. But you know what? I don't think it was. Yeah. I think the genius part of it was the fact that I enjoyed it. So I kept doing it yeah. and I did it week after week after week. And I did it because I enjoyed it. Yeah, I um, think that um, not enough talked about on, on learning, on leading with emotions with learning. Uh, it has to be something that you engage with, that you enjoy. Um, and if you are not making progress, then you've got to find a find an element of that language where you can, or whatever you do in your life that you enjoy, that you can kind of integrate with that language. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, it, that kind of goes to that... Um, I think I mentioned it to you. There's this fella, what was his name? I think his name's Mark, Al, Mark Almond. And he, re- he wrote something called Putting the Human into Teaching. And it's the idea that teacher trainers focus too much on what to do and less on how to be. Yeah. So we teach, we teach teachers techniques and say, well, this is the best technique you can use, right? Start off with a grass skirts activity and a, and a, um, a board rush and a whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> we don't focus on, well, you know, go into the classroom with a big smile on your face, get relaxed in your seat, chat with the students for five minutes and then see where the conversation goes and work with that. Uh, you know, so, you know, the idea, if someone comes in and they're quite charismatic and they do something like that, you know, like traditional methodology or certainly CELTA methodology might tell us, oh, we just come in and done, done a load of TTT and not achieved anything. But if we look at it in a kind of a different lens, we can say, well, we've come in, got the students relaxed, established a topic with a bit of general conversation without saying today's topic is going to be um stories in the past you know instead you've just come in you've said um oh hey maria uh, what did you do last weekend oh yeah oh yeah you know and just kind of got the students relaxed and started a conversation that way uh, and then that's i think that links to what you're saying about bringing the emotion into how we teach yeah uh, i mean i i definitely agree with that and it's there's there's a lot of rigidity um, and not allowing that you to be a person. You've got to be, I guess in the past, you, you had to be a teacher, so you had to be the authority. And, you know, there are, I can, especially when you're teaching younger kids, there are limits to that because you cannot be this on this, you cannot be a peer um, when you're teaching adults, you can. But I think mm. it's, it's, for me, it's another part of the school. <laughs> I think I used to push it quite to its limit, to be honest, but I think you are right. 
I remember that. Like sometimes uh, when I was teaching the nine and ten year olds um, last year in in Vietnam. I definitely think there was moments where I was more childish than the kids. In fact, I know there was because they used to tell me off. I'd be like just being stupid and doing something. Literally, I had like a nine-year-old girl going, teacher rich, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> just like, oops. Well, Sorry, not, miss. That's not to say it's, that's not to say it's, it's, uh, it's necessarily a bad thing. It, it becomes, you know, when you, when, you do, when you teach different situations, you kind of, have to give yourself a little bit of breathing room because you're yeah. kind of finding what works, what doesn't. You know, you'll probably yeah. you probably learn from that little girl, and you probably yeah. have flashbacks to her. <laughs> yeah, maybe I no. maybe I shouldn't do that again, that sort of thing. But you know, it doesn't. But. Well, yeah. No, to be honest, quite the opposite. I think I, I was telling the story in sort of a funny way. The reality is, I think uh, Neil, it comes down to. Um, you know, a lot of the thing with kids, behavior management, classroom management, all that kind of stuff, it's really a complex issue of experience. And um, as I'm sure you know, the more experience you get with kids, like you get massive, eventually become massively comfortable because you, you get to a point where you know you've got the rod if you need it. You know what I mean? Like, and they know, right? Yeah. They know that you have power to do stuff. Because, you know, you've hinted at it before. And once they know, and you know, it's like you, you can kind of let it all go then. Yeah, because, because um, the hierarchy has been established. It's, mm, that's kind of what I refer to as you can't, you can't be a peer so much. Yeah, um, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. You, but, you can't. Um, got, I mean, going away from the sort of Callan and direct method uh, stuff that I was doing in... Uh, in Spain that got me got me started kind of got me comfortable being in a classroom and doing this kind of conversational style towards the end uh, it was more conversational and doing these intercambios as well I learned a lot from doing them as a teacher mm. even though I wasn't necessarily yeah, me too. teaching I think um, just like learning a language is something that any language teacher should go through process of really everyone should learn a language or a learn to learn what it's like to learn a language at least yeah yeah um, but then I moved to Canada what after like three years or two three years something like that it's about three yeah it's about three wasn't um, it and in Canada uh, they had the provision if you want it you actually have to have if you want to teach English as a second language foreign language you actually have to have credentials so um, more than just you know like a weekend certificate so i got the celta um and then i started teaching at a school there um and i was just doing the general esl classroom teaching and fast transitioned into doing ielts uh, yeah it was more british based so for that the school it made sense that they had someone that was british that was teaching that that must have been that must have been really different from what you were doing before it was, uh, the fact it was that you just very, thrown very into all this exam. It was mm. kind of like on different ends of the spectrum. In yeah. Respect. Yeah, I imagine. It was really, really challenging. And I spent, well, you, you know, the CELTA is an intense course, um, not as intense as doing something like the Delta, I, I know. But um, just. It, it teaching, is at the time, yeah. But teaching um, without having to do all the prep which was basically what I was doing in Spain 
um, right. the direct method, and then yeah. that being added on, thinking yeah. how how can I structure this, how to do how to do the class yeah. the best yeah. way, and trying to apply what I did from Salsa. It that took up so much time. It takes yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so 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 much time. I you know it's kind of that like a the iceberg. You know the mm. students see the tip of the iceberg. They don't see the that what's underneath the ocean, which is all that preparation work and the methodology behind that. Um, but you know that was fantastic. I mean, I loved, I were, I loved the, I loved the Celta. Uh, I thought it was great. It gave me a good idea of a structure, with, mm. and it's kind of a structure that I still use to this day. But yeah, yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's a good grounding. <clears throat> yeah. It it is it is a good grounding. Um, <clears throat> I think um, I got a lot out of it. I uh, some of the things there's de it's definitely not beyond criticism. Uh, but then it's all these you know you don't want to criticize these things too much because you know ultimately there is <clears throat> you know so I think some people really break it apart. You know especially at diploma level. You know you get you get people who start like being like. You know the shelter. You know, it completely teaches people the wrong stuff. Blah blah blah. And it's like, well, you know, it's easy enough to say that now after you've done the shelter and you've been teaching for eight years, and you're now doing the diploma and learning all this advanced stuff to see it to be like, well, well, the shelter should do more task-based learning, you know, whatever. And maybe it should, but <clears throat> maybe it does now. Who knows? This has probably changed quite a bit, right? But um, um, I think at the end of the day, uh, one of the main things the CELTA establishes is it gets you thinking about why you do the things you do a little bit, which you get, which you expand on later in the dip, right? So in the CELTA, you know, because one of the big things, one of the biggest pain in the arses when you're doing the CELTA is this idea you have to write a rationale for all the shit you're doing, because at that stage, you've got no idea what a rationale is, right? So you're like, okay, I'm going to start the class with like, I'll get the students up and do a board rush on winter vocabulary, right? And then you've suddenly got this guy who's been te training teachers for the last 20 years, and he's like, why? Uh, don't know, because it'll be a laugh. <laughs> yeah, but how does, how does that help your lesson goals? Uh, um, because um, it's a game, and that makes people more communicative. You know, it's like, yeah, you, you don't really... You could rationalize everything. Yeah, that's it. And eventually, you know, you get to... You do start to think about it, you know, or if you don't think about it, you at least say, I haven't got a clue. And then they tell you, um, uh, you know, uh, like you learn about this pre-activation of schematic knowledge or whatever, right? Um, and, you know, you kind of, the, the idea of you're kind of walking into the classroom, you don't know what the student, well, you should have an idea of what the student's levels should be, um, but often is the case that you probably experienced in your teaching career that that's not always the way it is. Well, do you know, in the dip uh, where I did it in uh, Oxford House, Barcelona, good place with uh, very good teacher trainers, right? Um, they deliberately, for our class, mm -hmm. they deliberately um, put people in there who were um, level tested at A2 and level tested at B2. They had that whole range. And it was deliberate because they, um, I mean, for one, they wanted to kind of push us and test us, but also it gives you a reason, an excuse, and a need to differentiate. As in, yeah. 
you've got to be able to teach a class to this huge range of levels, mm-hmm. right, that still works. So you've got to have hard materials, easy materials, fast finisher stuff, you know. And it was quite good, actually, because it's not a standard thing that they do uh, with, with diplomas. Some places do it, some places don't. But I found it really useful. Because, as you say, in the real world... think that all, all the students are all at the same level. So they, they just plan without any kind of students in mind, without any flexibility um, to where they're going to approach stuff. So, you know, for me, that framework, the PPP framework was just so it's, it was just that in that the, the, P, the first P, the presentation is just kind of, you need to go into a classroom and understand what the level is there. So are you going to be doing some eliciting? Um, right. Are you going to be, you know, trying mm. to see? Oh, okay. Who knows what? Yeah. Who knows, who's got a little bit? Yeah. You know, or even just personalities. Mm. You know, is this person going? To, who's going to be the most vocal? Who's going to be yeah. shy? That sort of thing. Just kind of feeling things yeah, yeah. out. And then, well, kinds, then yeah. how are you going to get this language across? Are you going to be able to uh, retrieve it from the students and then kind of put it on the board? Mm. Or are you going to be giving it to them? Or that Ooh. sort of idea. Um, and then, you know, the whole practice and production, you know, for me, it just, it, that, that, all, that whole, it just made sense. You know, you, you, first you have to, you know, make sure that they have the language before you can do, so, you know, do something with it. And obviously, because they've just got it, they're not going to be very good at it. So they kind of need someone to watch them and make sure that they're not, when they're, when they're doing activities that they're not going too wildly off course or uh, what have you, and then just kind of giving them the reins uh, in that production aspect and going, okay, just go for it, just use it, use it as much as you can. Yeah. That that framework was fantastic. That was the main thing that I got away from uh, the CELTA, plus you know all the timing. But then it was kind of just. Okay, I, I have a, I have an idea of how a classroom should be now, uh, and that mm. was my main takeaway from that. And then taking that into an actual classroom with the general ESL and uh, IELTS, mm. uh, it was just you know what what's your goal for the day, and then kind of planning mm. backwards of how you're going to get there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I mean. <clears throat> Did you find that, um, I mean, because it must have been an interesting one as well, because you've come from the direct method and then you go, you do your CELTA. And obviously in the CELTA, you, um, I imagine they use some pretty nice material, like maybe English file or something they were using for your CELTA. I don't know. I for my CELTA, they were. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, Headway, Headway um, has, its, has its pros and cons, but it's, yeah, it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some people love it. Um, so, Okay. You got some like interactive, communicative language-based material, and then when you were doing the IELTS, you probably found the material was a bit more dry. I would imagine. With the IELTS, I'm just guessing. It, Maybe it wasn't. No, it was. I don't think it was. I wouldn't say dry. Uh, with the headway, I know, and a lot of the materials like English file headway, I kind of do find it a bit dry. You have to put, you have to sprinkle okay. a bit of personality in there anyway. Oh yeah. But I think you always with do. the IELTS stuff, it's just, okay, people now in headway and, uh, and 
English file and all those, the, the standard general ESL course books, people are like, yeah. oh, um, this, is, this person's having a conversation uh, on the telephone uh, and, or they're talking about their favorite pop. And then when you go to IELTS, it's like, okay, so this is the difference between nuclear dif uh, you know, fusion and nuclear fission. Uh, <laughs> and this is the process on how that works uh, within a diagram. <laughs> What's it mean? Uh, so they, it, yeah. you know, it that must be specifically for the level, the higher levels, no? level 9 and level 10 or whatever it is in IELTS, the higher ones. Well, when I started with the, the general, um, with the IELTS, I was teaching uh, beginners. Uh, the, so was that like... So they were aiming for level Five, band five, five and yeah. six. But, yeah, okay. You know, they're still going to encounter that language. Right, because the exam's the same. Yeah, yeah. because the exam's the same. So it was mm. kind of me kind of trying to strip it down a little bit to make it a little yeah. bit more understandable and, mm. you know, giving them techniques and tips on, well, okay, so maybe you don't understand this, but kind of what can you extrapolate from the things that you mm. do understand and how yeah. can you make it so... If you uh, put something, you know, you're more likely to get a bet, you know, more likely to get mm. the answer than, you know, than the not. Because did you ever did you ever do do any um, IELTS examining? Uh, I I've never done any 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 IELTS official IELTS examining. I've just have you done? Have you worked with colleagues who have been examiners? Yeah. <clears throat> so you've had conversations with them about it, I guess, and stuff like that. Yeah. It's things that they look out for. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I never, and obviously I never did it with IELTS, but way uh, in, back in Spain, towards the end, um, I was doing Cambridge English examining. Uh, and it does really give you a lot of insights, being an examiner, obviously. You know, it shouldn't really, but it does, because we're humans, we're not machines. And I think, actually, that's one of the biggest things I learned. We're humans, not machines, you know. Yeah. Because I remember one time, and um, definitely not going to name any names, not going to give any kind of context whatsoever, but um, I was getting assessed actually uh, by uh, by the by the top man. Um, so this is what happens as, as a Cambridge English examiner. Anyway, you um, you um, there's always two examiners. There's an interlocutor, the one who speaks. There's the the quiet one who who grades, and you swap over every pair of candidates. And then we also had the big man in who was watching me. And I was the interlocutor, so I was doing the speaking. You know, in this part of the test, you'll have two pictures. You, I want you to talk about the pictures and compare them, or whatever the bollocks, you know, whatever script thing you're saying. And uh, this girl came in, and this was, um, it was supposed to be B1, you know. And she kind of said a few things about the pictures, and then she just kind of like flicked the paper away, and she was like, what more can I say about this? You know, and she just said it in this kind of way that was like, what a load of rubbish this is. You know what I mean? And that killed her. Like, it really killed her because <clears throat> her, Eng her English was sounded okay. Not great, but it seemed like she was all right at the level, right? But as soon as she said that, I mean, I was obviously like, what the f You know? Yeah. <laughs> You're going like, to be like that about the material, for God's sake? Like, what are we supposed to do about that? And of course, I knew, and you know, <clears throat> when I give my grades, <clears throat> you know, and I was getting assessed on them because they have to be within a certain band of the, ex of the guy who's watching you. Otherwise, you fail and need extra training, right? Yeah. Um, 
so I knew I had to be within the right band, but I kind of knew what I was going to do anyway. I, I, I was going to just fail her, which is where she'd put herself. And that's, ex- you know, I did it and I put it exactly the same as the guy watching. And he really slagged her off. You know, he was just like, who's going to come into an exam? Blah, 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 blah. And you could see he'd been a bit offended by it. And I think anyone who's an oral examiner will attach a little bit to the materials, you know. So if you come in with a negative attitude, and it's going to apply to everything. If you just come in and just seem like, you know, know, you're not being pleasant, you're not being polite. But if you come in and you're pleasant and polite, you know, yeah, it's not going to make the difference between a huge fail and the pass. But it might, in fact, I know it will, even though it shouldn't, it will make the difference between a borderline fail and a pass. It will. Yeah. If you if you get the really pleasant person who comes in and goes, hello, how are you doing? Okay. But not someone who's like trying to butter you up. You know, that's the other thing because you get the yeah. guys who come in. You know, I got I got this guy once to come in and immediately try to shake my hand. Pleasure to meet you or whatever. <laughs> Both of us were like the examiners just sitting there looking at <laughs> you know, It's like, okay, sit down. <laughs> you know. That's too much, but thank you. It didn't count against him, you know, but also it was a bit like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but just just be pleasant, you know, just be pleasant, just be polite. That stuff does help. Excuse me. Uh, So from the Canada and the CELTA and the IELTS, uh, I went to Korea. Uh, I taught in a hogwan, uh, a training center that dealt with from like basically pre-K, K-1 to uh, high school, mostly just kind of the upper level of middle school. And that was just general, the general English. um, And then some specialty classes, like I did some debate classes as well with the, the students that were really good that kind of just, you know, a general ESL class is not going to cut it anymore. They need something a little bit uh, more geared to, you know, just practicing conversation, but it still needs to have a structure. So they end up doing the debate. Mm. And with with Korea, I worked so hard. It was it was a grind, um, mm. and it works because you didn't you. That was when I learned how to prep and just strip down everything that was that needed that you needed in the lesson plan um, without any any fluff because you just didn't have time to kind of think well what would be a better uh, class uh, a better activity to do with here or I want to try this oh. activity but I've got to I, it means that I've got to prep a little bit more. Do, so. do you mean you were you were you were teaching so many classes that you didn't have time to do like extensive prep is that what you're yeah, saying you basically had what like right. seven classes uh, a day uh, i've heard that least, yeah and then and it's like produ- production line time. yeah, yeah. Mm. 15 minute break between them go 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 jeez yeah it, that, yeah. that was uh they they got their money's worth and yeah, uh, I'm not I'm not going to complain about that because it's, it was it, it was a business and I did learn a lot from that. It, I learned to be more efficient and I learned to streamline, you know, what was important um, and to also you know think more on my feet and rely less on the the plan. 
Yeah, I think that's a very good point about efficiency and thinking on your feet. Uh, because one of the things I think that post Celtic teachers find very hard, uh, some of them anyway, is the amount of prep that they seem to need to do. Because they don't realize that obviously the more experience you become, like the less time that you spend. Maybe when you start teaching, you have to spend an hour a class preparing stuff. But obviously you get better at it. And uh, like you say, thinking on your feet, feet I think, is, a, is critical. Oh. And experience is irreplaceable when it comes to that as well yeah because you build up all the you build up all these activities in your head you have all this preparation or stuff to refer back to so if you had some dead time uh, because you didn't have enough time to plan properly or you know something didn't work out because you're dealing with kids um, having something to fall back on uh, and that experience it's just it's needed and I think it's a good way for a lot of people to kind of cut their teeth but it's it's uh it's trial by fire definitely mm. if you start with doing something like that yep yeah sounds like it and then so I did that for like two years two three years and from Korea went to China and China uh was I was teaching public school and I was teaching uh, primary elementary school kids uh, wow. and that was completely different because I'm used to these small 10 student classes in a training center where I've got in, you know, intimate interaction. I get to know the kids, um, mm. which was one of the main things I learned from teaching them was, you know, establishing what it is that makes them tick and, you know, kind right. of morphing lessons. Yeah, to then teaching over 50 plus students in a class. Whoa! Um, 50? How old were these kids? Like seven? Grade one. Uh, I specialized in doing grade oh, one, two, and so three. So that's five, six, right? Yeah, five, six yeah, years whoa. old. Yeah, um, Okay. You mm. know, I'm, I'm very young, five, six years old as well. Right, so tiny, that tiny children. With oh. a lot of kids. Um, then, you know, in the Hogwarts, doing a lot of group activities to being, well, how can I do all these group activities with these kids that mm. the first time touching English? Um, did you so, did you have a couple a couple of TAs and stuff as well with that? No. <laughs> what? You had no. what? But no TAs. No. Well, you were just you and fifty kids. They would, they would sit in for like the first couple of classes. Um, but I figured out very early on that I, I was basing a lot of my classes around PowerPoint because it was, mm. it was a way to kind of get them to focus and to uh, right. narrow their view. Um, yeah, you need, you, that's what you need to do. Uh, yeah. But yeah, a lot of the classes, especially the, the second year, they, just, they, just, they would poke their head in. But that, I, by that time, mm. I was already experienced. I, I had yeah. a plan. I knew how to control kids. It was, it was not perfect yeah. by a long shot because kids mm. will be kids. And there's a lot of stuff that I want, would, would have liked to have done more. But you, you must have had but. sort of surprise disaster scenarios as well, you know, someone vomiting up, someone punching someone else, someone, you know, wetting themselves. I mean, they're five. I mean, I imagine that happened though. And I mean, dealing with that situation where you've got another 49 kids to take care of, while your attention is divided by 
you know, because they sort of, it's almost like they have a sixth sense for when the teacher is occupied with some, some emergency situation, isn't it? Yeah, um, and then it's, man, like, that's, it it's really crazy. Apart. But that's, that's when experience comes in. That's when mm. you assign other students to help you or to deal with the situation. And it's like you say, you've, you've got that rod. So it's just, if mm. something goes to shit, You've still got the rod. It's just right. you have to know what to do with it to, uh, yeah. you know, direct the students to you know, to help you because they're not they're, mm. they're kids. It doesn't mean that they're yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah, kids. yeah. True. They need that yeah. Direction. But I think um, I think I would I would feel very uncomfortable in that situation because um, you know a lot of my uh, rod techniques, a lot of my discipline techniques involve me at least knowing the student's name. I found that it works. It doesn't work as well if I'm just like, hey, you, you come here kind of thing, you know. But if I know like, you know, uh, if I'm like, Jose, because, you know, I've said their name, they know, I know their name. Mm -hmm. They know that if I talk to their parents, I know who their parents are because I know their name, right? They know I have all these options. But if it's a cl class of 50 Chinese kids, right? Yeah. It's like, um, Ming, you know, or whatever, yeah, you know, it could be anything. English names, some don't have English names, but right. that's when stuff like nicknames come in, and that's you know when mm. they learn the vocabulary and they learn, you know, that um, someone's tall or short. You can, you know, point to them and do that sort of thing. You can, you can be funny with it, and, you know. Okay. Take a yeah, yeah, sure. And that sort of stuff, but it, yeah. it's difficult. I mean, you. Did you did you ever um, record any? I mean, you probably couldn't, I guess, because of child protection. But I I would really like to see a recording of someone teaching a class of fifty kids. Like <laughs> I think a recording be of a person teaching fifty plus students in very well uh, and organized manner. Please go to Team Teacher China. Uh, I've got multiple videos of me teaching. Amazing. Um, these long classes, different styles of classes, reading classes, your PPP uh, style classes. Um, it's something that uh, was I was good at, and that's why I started Team Teacher China because I would be getting a lot of questions from people of like, well, what are you doing? Is it, what what PowerPoints are you doing? So mm. I started the channel because there was a lot of these kind of backpack teachers. That, yeah. that, you know, just because you're a yeah, so, To be honest, thing. we all start off that way. That's another thing that people turn their noses up about, me included. You know, backpack teachers, it bothers me that people enter our industry and don't take it seriously. But let's be honest, at one time or another, we all started off not being a teacher and then we became one. So. I mean, when do yeah. you ever start a job and you're like super serious about your job unless you, you know, already put in, you know, like eight years of medical school. <laughs> then you're like, I better mm. be damn serious about my job. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you then you find out you don't actually like being a doctor. You're in big trouble. Oh, <laughs> that, that's a whole different conversation about... Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, that sounds fascinating, man. That's it's, that's great that you, you you got the little product placement in there as well. And, uh, you know, it was, all, we, it was like, the, it was almost like we set that up, wasn't it? But... Uh, we didn't set that up is the interesting thing that was I was genuinely asking and I was genuinely wondering how, you know, how do you deal with this classroom of 50 kids? 
And the fact that you've got, um, obviously, I'm exposing the fact that I haven't been through your back catalogue of videos yet, but I hadn't, I hadn't no, seen I, any of you um, like actually actively teaching. So. videos, so I don't... Wow, really? Yeah. I didn't realise you had that many videos on the channel either. Oh, I, think I, I think I've got about 30. Yeah. After, after, after like eight years. <laughs> a lot of people need help. A lot of people need help. Oh so. my God, yeah. yeah maybe know, I some should, of the videos aren't, aren't so Maybe good, I should so. change the focus oh. of my channel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but hey-ho, yeah. Um, but oh, yeah, with the, the public school as well, it also, there was so, I can do a whole episode on um, podcast on just talking about China and the difficulties of dealing with that. Um, oh, I'm I sure. I'm sure. Yeah. I, well, we'll I mean, maybe save right that now, for another time, but yeah. I mean, right now I'm back in Canada teaching, uh, teaching an IELTS uh, again. Mm. Um, and I think I just, to finish kind of the, my teacher narrative story of where, how I came to be, how I am. Um, one of the things when I was thinking about this and thinking about the question, looking back was how much how much of a, a variety that I've um, encountered in the classroom and mm. how every situation was different and yeah I think people one of the things is people end up doing just generally ourselves for adults or or you know just teaching kids and I kind of feel lucky in that I've had all these different experiences yeah. but I don't think yeah. One of the things I appreciate is when we talk about teaching English, it's it can mean so many different things. You know, Ooh. my experience uh, is going to be very different to other people's experience. If someone's yeah. really good at teaching kids, then you know, then maybe maybe they that they wouldn't be very good at teaching adults. They would be able to get there, but I, I wouldn't mm. disregard what they would have to say. So yeah. because it's. it's Mm. Every situation is different. I don't think people appreciate that enough about teaching English is that if you are someone that's got a big and kind of varied background or just even if you're specialized in one thing, the, the amount mm. of depth and experience and detail that you would have and intricacies that you have with it is, you know, yeah. it's, it's mind-boggling. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that's probably why I'm still a teacher after all this time, to be honest. So I've never been particularly good at sticking to one job. Um, you know, I get bored easily. Um, yeah, and I think it's what you say, Neil, that um, there's, it's so complex. There's so many things that you can um, you can learn. You never stop learning as a teacher. I don't want to get, you don't want to start whipping out these ridiculous platitudes like, it's almost like the kids teach us you know or anything gay like that but um that was a bit pc wasn't it Maybe i shouldn't say stuff like that whatever anyway <laughs> so <laughs> i do this on my own channel as well so it's not really a problem I, yeah so i i agree with you i think it, i think it's so complex it's such a it's such a, a kind of a um uh and i and i also agree with you about getting involved in a diversity of different types of classes um like um you know, it is it is the more difficult thing to do. And yes, some people just really um, do not want to teach kids is the big one, isn't it? And, you know, I was like that. Um, I mean, I don't know. 
I don't know if it's worth us going through this whole question again for me, or whether I should just throw in bits. What would you like to do? Or is that what we're going to do? Yeah, I, th- I think I think so. I think it right, would okay. be worth uh, a whole podcast of you know what is Richard's background and that sort of mm. thing, and focus on right. that. Okay. We might might even have to do that like next week or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No. No. I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to do that. Um, I guess just to just to finish that point, rather than leaving it as a cliffhanger, then um, um, the the first time I taught kids was quite early on. It was after about teaching for about a year or so, and it was before I did my CELTA. Uh, it was with an international house who, let's be honest, international house's reputation continues to fall because of the way that the way that they uh, they have great training programs, but let's be honest, the way that they um, that they maintain the standards of their franchises, uh, in my experience, is, is not being good. So I worked for um, IH Valencia. I'm quite happy to name them, uh, as well as IH Cordova. They're two terrible institutions, and I would recommend that no everyone stays very clear of them. But um, working for uh, IH Valencia, I had my first um, kids class, and that was like you, in your situation, it was working at a state school. This was after I'd only been teaching for a year mm-hmm. before doing the CELTA. Oh my God, they, uh, I had no idea what to do. I had 25 kids and they completely just destroyed me. They destroyed the classroom. They destroyed each other. They threw stuff out the window. Everything went wrong. None of them spoke a word of English. I didn't speak a word of Spanish. I had no TA. I had no idea what was going on. And it was only an hour, but it was horrendous. And it was, it traumatized me so much. I wasn't particularly good with kids at the time anyway, that, um, I never touched kids again. Oh God, that's a bit of a weird phrase, isn't it? I never touched <laughs> kids' classes again. <laughs> I never went anywhere near teaching kids again um, for five years. Um, and then when I did, I was very cautious. You know, I went into it like, all right, okay, sure, I'll do a bit of that, you know. Um, but then when I got, and I just did like a few here and there and kind of got to understand a little bit about more about teaching kids, I was like, all right. And then when I eventually, you know, later got to Vietnam and I was doing, the majority of my classes became like kids, actually, teens and kids, um, you know, and it's just once you learn the ins and outs of it, once you learn the, the like I say, the, the behavior management and the, 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 chi- the child psychology, basically, how yeah. child's minds are just so different to ours. Um, it becomes very energizing, you know. It's a completely different thing than teaching adults. Well, almost a completely different thing. Yeah, and that's kind of the point that I was trying to touch on. That it's it's different. It's completely di- what? Yeah, I know you say it's not completely different, but it, it's, it's almost very, very different. <laughs> yeah, it's very. It is. It is. You're absolutely right. It's very, very different. And I used to feel very, very different in that class and after those classes because. When I teach kids, I start bouncing off the wall. And I know not all teachers do this. Some people do. Some people stay very calm, you know, as a teacher, and they make the kids calm by being calm. Mm-hmm. I don't. I go in and I start, I start flying around and bouncing off the wall. You know, everything is about, all right, bam, 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 right. Everyone sit down. I've got something to tell you, you know, and I'm like throwing memes up on the interactive whiteboard. Check out this meme. <laughs> Right. Okay. It's kind of related to what I'm about to tell you. And then I start on something else. Right. And, uh, and the kids start getting a bit, you know, thingy as well. 
Uh, and then obviously you kind of bring them down a bit when they've got to go back to their tables and, and do whatever because you don't want them to go back to the tables, bounce off the wall as well. Yeah. But I always used, I always come out of those kids' classes like, you know, I, I was kind of buzzing. Um, you know, didn't really come out of adults' classes with <laughs> the same energy, right? Well, so that, it was a very different thing. Saying, well, it's not a saying per se, but when people talk about how they like to be around younger people or how they like to be around kids because it helps them feel young again then mm. they're taking that energy and I guess that's kind of what you're doing I think for me it was a, yeah not not so much about energy but um, because I actually think the energy came from me to them <laughs> or it was almost like I, I thought they were going to be like that so I came in like that and then they would react to my energy and, and kind of or whatever but um, so I think the psycho psychologically, definitely, I de-aged. Like when I was when I'm when I'm around nine and ten year olds, I definitely feel like I'm acting a bit like a nine year old or whatever. Except when one of them, you know, I don't know when one of them says a, a naughty word or something, and then you have to get into serious teacher mode and be like, "Oi, all right, let's have a talk. Why did you say that? You know, it's not a good thing. Do you know what it means?" Do we have to speak to your father about this? You know. Yeah. Or do you want another word? Do you want to? Do you want? Or do you want to speak to? Do you want to speak to my boss? He's a very busy man, but you know, maybe you'd like to have a chat with him and explain why you'd like you're going to waste his time by saying these naughty words in class. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, you get the idea. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, psychologically, and that's one of the reasons actually. I'd say my favourite age range. In, you know, I'm getting into my story. Back off. We'll save it for another episode. <laughs> it's cool, right, man. It's so, cool. And you, you get into it, and that's what I like. Um, I like it. I like uh, to, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So the, the next question that I was thinking that we could have is, you know, kind of talking about what it was before teaching and after teaching. So the idea being, well, what what are your expectate what were your expectations about being a teacher and what was that reality after Ooh. you became the teacher and mm, that's an interesting one isn't it? i kind of i like that question i saw the question like, mm. tell me about the expectations and the realities and then i thought to myself mm. well my expectations was after watching you know so many movies like um dead poet society uh and all these <laughs> you know, kindergarten cop <laughs> no, that's Who is your reality. daddy? That's more. Ah, that's a good point. <laughs> but yeah. so for me, like it was more that these teachers are supposed to kind of inspire, you know, like dangerous minds, and then suddenly there's going to be all oh, this changing lives around and stuff like that. Mm. And I think you know there are elements of that when you uh, after you do become a teacher, you know, especially if you're doing. Um, if you have those students that just were not confident about using English and then they can use English and they're like, and it's the first thing that they've done that they've in their life that they've, it's a solid achievement for them. And you're like, well, I helped mm. do that. Uh, I helped them move, you know, I, I, you know, was part of that process. Uh, you know, that's great. But a lot of the reality is, um, there's a lot of growing pains. And going back to mm. kindergarten cop, 
you know, who is your daddy and what does he do? You know, that's not the approach that you would take when teaching uh, kindergarten students. And, you know, if he became a teacher, I'm sure, you know, he would like realize, oh, yeah, that's probably not the best way to start going about teaching these kindergarteners by interrogating <laughs> them <laughs> and shouting at them, you are not a princess. You're right though, it's so funny. Pains. I that don't is think literally... talk about that enough with being yeah. a teacher. You kind of, mm. oh, you're a teacher. Just because you've got the job of a teacher doesn't mean that you are a teacher. Yeah. You, you, you're going to make so many mistakes. And you, mm. a lot of the, oh, yeah. I think a lot of the reasons why teachers drop out is because they don't want to go through the, the, that growing pain of getting the experience mm. and making the mistakes. Um, yeah. There was a study, I can't remember uh, what it was from, um, what I saw it from, I think it was a documentary, um, but yeah. the, the person was talking, it was in New York State, uh, the schools, mm. and they were saying most teachers drop out before they're uh, two years in. And, right. and they were saying how that's really sad because teachers only become, a, they, they said that the, they found the teachers only to become particularly effective after the two years. Mm. Yeah, so. that's interesting. Yeah, um, something you said there that twigged something as well, and I can't remember what it was now, it went, it went back to something else you were saying. I'm just rambling. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think um, that's when the reality is there's a lot of there's a lot of prep, there's a lot of there's a lot of grind, there's a lot of right. mistakes, and there's there's yeah. so much you're going through. It, it's kind of it kind of kind of equate it to like learning to drive a car. It's just yeah. you're failing. You get so frustrated and you. You have everything in your mind of how you want it to be, and you just mm. don't have the the skills. Your your body's yeah. not working properly. Your mind, the stuff that I, comes th- out I think it, I think it's worse. I think it's worse than that though, because I think there's a there's a, there's quite a bit of potential humiliation and embarrassment. And um, I think like what you're saying is, you know, people basically go through a bit of that, like I did the first time I taught kids, you know, and it was really a, quite a humiliating experience. Uh, you know, because I was, you know, I was kind of big and young at the time, you know, and I, th- I was like, I was like Arnie, you know, in kindergarten cop. I was like, stop doing that. Right. You know, like kind of bawling at them a bit. Yeah. That, yeah, that's not, you know, that's like, that's like you just used all your power without having any of it, you know, yeah. and it's all gone once that starts, you know, they know that they know that they're the kings of the castle. Um, so, um you know, there's that. And it was really negative for me. And it did put me off teaching, going back to kids for a long time. Um, and I think that's the other point I would make about it, because you were talking about teachers dropping out. Um, it's not just about dropping out. It's that um, it would, uh, you know, teachers who've had these negative experiences, they're more inclined to stay in their safe zone. Like, oh, I just do business classes with adults, right? Or, oh, I, you know, and I've met some people who say I only do kids, you know, oh, I just do kids and just the lower levels. I don't want to do the higher levels where they ask questions about grammar and stuff that I don't, because they've just had some one or two bad example, bad, bad experiences of someone asking them a, a grammar question they don't know the answer to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they didn't use an appropriate strategy for dealing with that situation. 
of which there are many because teachers are not walking dictionaries and walking grammar reference books. You know, we can't be expected to know everything at every time. I just today, um, when I I put up that video on my channel of of me teaching an online class, um, I, um, I don't know if I've mentioned that to you, but anyway, I put that up and I, I, um, I, that's right. Professor Rich. Well, we'll do, we'll do some like selling of our appropriate channels at the end there, but, um, uh, youtube.com slash professor rich and uh, <laughs> uh, so I ballsed up a, um, an explanation of fish because she said to me is fish uncountable and my instant response was oh yeah fish is uncountable except in the situation that you're talking about different species of fish and we can start saying fishes and it's actually wrong fish is uncountable when you're talking about food only when you talk about the animal it's it's countable, but it has an irregular plural form, as in the singular fish, the plural is still fish, one fish, two fish, three fish. I have three fish in my tank, right? Yeah. And, I, and it, I twigged like pretty much as soon as I'd uploaded the video, <laughs> to be honest. I watched it and I was like, oh, bah. So, you know, and it's like, well, I've been teaching for almost 12 years now. Um, and, you know, that happened. Not only did I make that mistake, it was in a recorded class that I've now uploaded onto my YouTube channel, mm-hmm. which now has a disclaimer about the explanation that I give about the plurality of the word fish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the end of the day, we're not, we're not Google, you know, we're not, we're not yeah. robots. We, um, you mean you don't know how to spell supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? <laughs> Are you I think an it's English per- teacher? <laughs> yeah, it's perfectly reasonable to, to A, say, Hmm, interesting question. I tell you what, I'll just check into that a bit and I'll, and then we'll look at that at the start of next class. Or, you know, even to have a go with an explanation that you're quite confident about, which is what I did, mm-hmm. and then balls it up a little bit and the next class be like, yo, you know, when I said that thing about fish, there's one other thing I want to tell you about. It. <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, that's, that's uh, hugely important in that, um, and when you get more experience, you realize you can make it smooth. So if someone's That's like, right. um, oh, let me get back, instead of going, let me get back to you on that, you, you can just, um, when they say that, you'd be like, well, that's a really interesting question. And then give like preamble while you're kind of thinking about thinking about it. Explaining. Yeah. yeah, very much and, so. You know, that mm. it's a skill that you you learn because you're kind of not yeah. wanting you're kind of not wanting to go off track, so you're kind of trying to be smooth or true. And you you always want to avoid that situation, which still happens to all of us, where you're they you, someone asks you a question, you go, oh, da 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 da. da. Okay, uh, yeah, it's um, uh, and there's just this silence in the classroom while the teacher looks at an empty board with their pen. <laughs> you know you just like at what point do i turn around and go hmm let's come back to this and everyone's like teacher doesn't know yeah, i don't think people understand that kind of pressure as well uh, yeah that's the thing like, isn't it okay so imagine writer's block but everyone's expecting and watching you to write <laughs> but you but speak english don't like, you well, we're gonna come to, don't worry about that we're gonna come to that later or we'll, we'll come, we're gonna circle back round to that i like that circle back and do the little this and yeah. then they start looking at this <laughs> and like, <laughs> yeah 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 ah, yeah you're, you're <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> and you're just like 
Right, everybody up, board rush, team A, team B. <laughs> Turn on some loud music. <laughs> Uh, the question was, describe how you put together a lesson and how you teach it. Um, so, as you probably wow. kind of uh, gathered from my experience and me repeating how much I love PPP, is I put together stuff with a PPP uh, mindset uh, framework. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm sticking to it you know, to the letter, uh, but just that idea of I've, I've got to bring in this new language at some point. We need to do some sort of practice with the new language where I can watch over them a little bit and then there you go, do it as whatever you can. Mm. But it, for me, it always starts with the language point. Um, it starts, you know, what is the goal? Just, you know, like Celta, what, what is the thing that you want, they, you want them to learn by mm. the end of the class? But yep. also what I'm considering when I'm putting it together, I'm mining what I, they've previously learned. So you know, mm. I'm thinking, okay, so this is what I've got now. We're talking about animals. What have we, what have we learned previously? Uh, we've learned what? So we've got mm. some adjectives, some colors. Can I use any of that vocabulary um, at the beginning of the class to kind of get them to talk about the animal? You know, how can I build? Basically, that's that's me when I'm trying to do my lessons. Is I'm kind of thinking of I, like Tetris. Like how am I building, uh, and how can I put this language point and connect it in so many ways that I possibly can to the language that they mm. already have um, mm. to better uh, learn uh, that. And you know how I teach that is you know with the PPP. Um, I do, and that how I teach it is going to be really dependent on whatever class I'm teaching kids or adults or, you know, IELTS or general ESL, but it's always going to be with a focus on engagement and um, mm. energy. <clears throat> yep, that's interesting that you say focus on engagement because, um, you know, being that you didn't kind of run through the more, um, uh, you know, the, the certificate side of things with the diploma and everything, you probably wouldn't know that. Um, have you heard of something called ESA, Engage, Study, Activate? Yeah, that's... Oh, you have heard that? Okay. Yeah, I see that um, PPP as being almost one in the same. Yeah, they are. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, so, no, but I think I think Jeremy Harmer, who you know came up with that, I think he, he kind of admits that he just th he just thinks that it's a it's a better way of thinking of PPP. Yeah, you know, I, I can see that definitely. Mm. Yeah, it's just that it's it's still a three part process, um, but I would definitely say it's better labels because so I guess when mm. you get. That's uh, one of the things that think people turn off about PPP is this whole idea that this, you know, this is a pen and this is a banana and, you know, like you're like it's just you're lecturing them and it's not that's not always the case. It's always just kind of. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just literally take the words presentation, practice, production, 
it could easily just be like you throw on the board, you know, I have been to France, right? And you go, right, there's your presentation. Then you practice, you go like, right, give them a load of sentences that are kind of look like the present perfect, but have a few mistakes in there. I has been to France or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then your production's a couple of questions, you know, about it or whatever, and they have to go and ask other students. But obviously that would be rubbish. You know, that would be really a threadbare, you know, <laughs> PPP class. But going from those words, presentation, practice, production, you would have ticked the ideas, right? You would have actually done that. Whereas with engaged study activate, you know, you've got some things which are a bit harder to qualify there. I mean, engage. It's like, have you engaged the students? Yeah. Now, I guess it's a bit more, you know, learner-centric rather than rationally, have I presented something to someone? It's, you know, are the students engaged with what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. Are they studying the language point? Yeah, so like you say, it's probably a better kind of, name for it. It almost is, whereas presentation feels like it is too narrow, engage could be too wide because that could be, a teacher coming in going, telling yeah. jokes and singing songs and like, well, all right, it, yeah. it's engaging them, they're paying attention, but it's... What's the point? Establishing mm. a language point. Mm, sure, yeah. But, yeah. but that, that whole idea of, the th- of just three parts, however you want to put it, um, I, is, has always worked for me mm. and it's just kind of the way that I think about uh, a class and a lesson right. going forward. Um, it's solid. Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, you, you know, it is. It is pretty much the same for me. Um, but um, I do like to mix it up, and there's definitely a whole range of different things that I like to dip into. Uh, one of them is dialogic storytelling with Jamie Kelly style. But I'm gonna, I'll save that for next week. Ooh. But uh, what I, <laughs> what I will talk about is I'll talk a little bit about t- TBL. Yeah, uh, just because it's kind of on my mind and I can't help but respond to the whole PPP thing. So um, even though I love P- the majority of my lessons are PPP, no doubt about it. And, um, you know, people can slag it off all they want. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, you know, a good beer is a good beer. It doesn't you don't have to pay 20 quid for a bottle of fancy wine. Or whatever, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about, something like that. But <laughs> yeah, the point is PPP has a special place in my heart. But yeah, TBL. Have you done any TBL? And do you know when I say task-based learning, what do you think what do you think of? Do you have any ideas about that? So when I think of task-based learning, it's the the focus is not so much learning on learning the language, from my understanding, it's more that there's there's a task to be accomplished, and to, in order to accomplish that language, there's, there's, you know, English that you've got to learn to go along with that. And for example, um, there was an activity that I would do where um, the they had to make like a Lego, like a Lego structure, but it was mm-hmm. divided. So one student had the Lego, and the other, and then there was a blinder. And the other students had like the instructions and they had to tell the person how to kind of construct this Lego structure without actually seeing it. So yep. kind of, is, is that kind of what we're talking about here? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that would be kind of a starting point. Uh, it has a more specific framework than that. Okay. Uh, but that's the starting point. And even then, TBL has been sort of changed and adapted and watered down a bit, actually, a lot. Uh, because people people steer away a bit from the pure form 
but I actually really like the pure form. I know there are problems with it, and I'll, I'll mention them as, as I kind of go. But um, So the, the, the pure form of TBL is something like this. Um, first, you get the students to perform some sort of task. Now, that could be like you're saying, and by the way, this is the start of the lesson, okay. right? So there's no, it's none of this, like, I'm going to present you with some language, and here's a useful language. Forget all that. Mm-hmm. You give them a task, and you go, right, do this. You can only talk in English, go kind of thing. Or please, you know, you have your classroom rules, talk in English, and off, off you go. Um, so, and the task could be, like you say, it could be um, building something together. It doesn't have to be so uh, practical. Obviously, those kind of tasks are very nice. But, you know, uh, one that I really like, that I kind of... Yeah, exactly. That's it. You know, uh, you're stuck on a desert island, what would you take? Or... Uh, you know, you have to throw a celebrity out of a balloon, who's it going to be or whatever. Um, or um, there's one I really like from an old cutting edge book, which is um, they give you a map. And, you know, it's kind of it's a very free flowing map with a couple of things on there. And there's some notes on the back about how the guards move around and stuff. And you have to rob a museum. So you talk together about your plan for robbing the museum. And obviously, you know, there's no rules, really. So you could sort of say anything. You know, I'm going to get a bazooka and blast a hole in the wall. But at the end of the day, they have to use certain, you know, they have to communicate to do it. So you let them off with that. On they go. They do their task. Uh, they have a go. They maybe struggled. In fact, you kind of want them to struggle a little bit because that's the whole point in a way. So they struggle. And uh, then what comes next? So next, um, they you do a listening where they listen to a pair of natives, a group of natives or a native, shall we say, uh, as, which might be you as the teacher, um, doing the task. And I, the, the way I normally do this is I record it. So I record me and another teacher or me doing the task. And I don't think about it too much. I just do it naturally, right? And that becomes the language point because what language am I using or native using that they don't use, right? And then you have an activity after that listening which uh, facilitates the noticing of the language that you use that they don't. And then they do the task again. But you, you put a different twist on it. Like with the robbing a museum one, use a different map of the museum, or this time you rob a bank and it's a different map, right? So it's not boring. They're doing the, the, but they're doing basically the same task, but this time you've enabled them with this new language. And not only that, but there's this thing of noticing the gap, which is they were struggling when they did that task the first time, right? Because they were trying to use, I mean, theoretically, they were trying to use language that they didn't have. And then when they listened to, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Native doing it, then they realize, oh, look, that's how people who, you know, who know English pretty well um, do the task. So I'll use those language structures to enable me to do it. That's the theory of it, right? Um, And um, I like it a lot. I think it works very well. It's not without its challenges, no doubt. And to be honest, the idea of it being that pure, I mean, when you and the other teacher are recording yourself, you know, you're kind of grading your language a bit and stuff. You know, it's not totally authentic. And you could do it in even purer than that and make it ultra authentic. But, you know, people have a lot of problem with that these days as well, don't they, Neil, to be honest? Like, just the idea of saying the word native, I feel a bit odd when I'm saying it, because what does it mean? It's all, you know, and it all gets a bit philosophical. But, you know, I still think it's a useful model. Um, I would hope that, 
you know, me and another English teacher have a better command of the English language than our students and therefore are a useful model for them. And therefore... When, the when I think native as well nowadays, it's, I don't mean the language. I think that's how we speak. Uh, that's how we think, sorry. Or, you know, so... We talk, we talk about language like it's somehow separate from ourselves, but when we are talking to ourselves, when we are thinking, we are, it's the structure in which we process our world um, yeah. in many ways. So mm -hmm. when yeah. you're native, when you're, uh, when you're talking about a native English speaker, it's just, you know, that is how the world is in their head. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all English. Okay. So, so, yeah, this uh, is this. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I see the point you're making. Um, because I've studied a bit of applied linguistics, and only because of that, I know that that can get very kind of dicey and controversial as well. Oh, you know, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh God, we get into all kinds, right? We have to start talking about uh, Noam Chomsky and all kinds of stuff if we, if we go there. Um, so, uh, I mean, oh, academically, no. anyway, although, you know, your point's perfectly valid. And uh, honestly, I think people make too much of it. I'm perfectly happy to accept the idea of native language speakers as a useful model. And maybe that, that idea is getting a bit outdated. It doesn't matter to me because TBL, as far as I'm concerned, is really cool. And uh, I love it. And like I say, uh, it can be as easy. And I did this on my diploma, the TBL listen I did on my diploma, which, by the way, my diploma tutor, uh, I don't want to get her name wrong now, Nicola, can't remember her surname. Um, she was wonderful. Um, but anyway, my diploma tutor, she forced me to. She said, for your next class, uh, you have to do TBL. And I was like, what? Uh, never done that. And, uh, and she sort of told me about TBL and said, go, go with this. And, um, you know, and that really got me into it. And when I did it, I did the native recording of me just on my, on my smartphone. I just recorded myself audio on my smartphone in another classroom mm -hmm. and then threw that onto the, 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 the technology they had and, and did it like that. And it worked amazing, you know. And ever since then, I've been a big fan of TBL. Mm -hmm. um, however, I believe it takes more preparation than a PPP, which is why the majority of my classes are still PPP because... If I'm going to prep a TBL, I do think it's, you know, I, I am going to need extra time. And there's, and that's considering that you don't mess it up. You know, maybe you do the recording, listen to it and think, oh, it's not going to work. Or maybe you even try out the lesson and the students just don't know. You know, it has its own problems. Like, for example, the students do the task and they use all the language that you've designed the lesson around. And suddenly you're like, well, I'm teaching them now because <laughs> they're going to listen to my recording. And they, they've already used all of the target language. So, you know. Uh, well, obviously, I guess uh, you kind of need to be using it with with students that you've already kind of got a good idea of if they know yeah. the language or not. It, but, it's the know, same, yeah. It, yeah, the same problem that you'd have with PPP, right? Because maybe with PPP, you say like, I'm going to go in the A2, so I'm going to go in and teach them, um, you know, past simple versus past continuous. And then you go in and they just breeze through all the activities. And then you say like, look. They know it. My lesson succeeded. Yeah, but they already knew it. So your lesson did not. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not a victory at all. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I, yeah. I, I will definitely look into doing more like that. I feel like I've, because I've mentioned the desert island, I've, with conversation classes, I've done uh, stuff like that. Yeah. But probably 
I can't think of an instance where I've done a notice the gap. That's so. yeah. I mean, that is a that is a critical stage, definitely, because um, really the the biggest the, the the big success you can have with TBL is that you don't have to push them too much for them to notice it. Because really, what you're trying to get them to do is for them to come to an autonomous realization that there's a tool that can help them that's there that they can now hear when they're listening to it, right? And they go, oh, cool, right? And you're training that skill well, of being the, like, the, mm. It reminds me of the, the, the discovery method. You know? Yeah. So in that the, you, they are discovering, they are noticing something that, mm. but it's not that they've, they've naturally come to that. You, you kind of uh, fabricated because you, you're like, well, yeah. this is what you were saying. This is what you, this is. Yeah. What you I mean, um, oh. well, that, yeah. In, in, induc it inductive, same. <laughs> inductive teaching, what right? Is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're totally right. You're totally right, Neil. I mean, it is, it is synthetic in a way. The idea that there's, I mean, but someone out there. I, I mean, I if like we, it because the more, the, the when you explain it, the more that you, the more that you can get a student to work stuff out themselves, the better because that's what sticks with them. Because you've you've not just taught that language point, you've also taught them a tool of mm. you know critical thinking as well. Yeah. Well, that's that's. I mean, that that's the selling point of it, inductive language teaching, isn't it? It's good that you you can explain that well. I'll tell you what, because um, I used to have a big issue with this um, because I, you know, I don't know if you had this experience, but I certainly had the experience uh, early on in Spain that um, deductive grammar teaching worked very well, and I I think it was probably because that's what they were so used to in the school system, you know, but it worked very well, you know, like you don't, don't do any of this throw up a text and get them to notice the grammar structures. No, no, no. Tell them present perfect. We use it for this, this, and this, this is how you form it. This is what you do. This is, and this is what I'm talking about now is deductive grammar teaching, which is very out of favor with the ELT crowd, right? But it, it used to work really well because they just, it's what they expected. And they loved it, you know, and they were like, oh, the present perfect is for this, this, and this, right? Got it. I've got the rules in my head. Right, and then you give them the exercises and off they go. Um, and I used to have a big problem because I used to ask a lot of people who were more experienced than me, you know, why, why did we love inductive grammar teaching so much? Why are all the books inductive? Why do they always push inductive? You know, and inductive is the method that you're talking about, which is discovery, right? Um, and it, it was found, it took me a long time to find someone who could explain it. And even on my diploma, when I was sold on deductive to some extent, but I didn't know why, right? And uh, even then, you know, and I, I, I um, we had some, it was, a, it was a partially an online course. We had some forums and I asked some of the tutors on there. And even then, you know, they were kind of brushing it off, you know, and I was kind of like, I'm getting to this level and they're brushing it off. I'm starting to lose faith in this. And I finally, I found one of them. It was one of the teachers at the same center and she was absolutely bang on. In fact, she was my personal tutor for my uh, project. I can, I suppose I can name her because I'm, I'm, I'm complex. I think her name was Emma Mead. Um, she was a brilliant personal tutor. And um, 
I think I asked her uh, because I, I just wasn't getting particularly good answers on the forum. So I specifically in one, it was, she was supposed to be my project tutor, but I just threw it into a question thing about, you know, what is the, why, why do we sort of prefer inductive teaching? And she, she explained it, you know, like you said, um, it, it's, it's this something that it sticks in your head. The way that she put it is um, it automatically ticks a lot of the boxes required for like, sustainable learning so um the idea that you know you have to investigate uh, personalization happens kind of automatically because you're involved in the process of teaching yourself which means that you're going to have a, an emotion a more of an emotional reaction to it yeah, as you were talking about before with emotional memory right um so you know if someone's just banging something on a whiteboard and going this is the present perfect you can just you can switch off you can make it external. It's, it doesn't have to be personalized. But if someone gives you a text, someone gives you some clues and says, right, work this out, then you have that personal emotional investment, um, which helps it, as you say, it helps, helps it facilitates, facilitates it sticking in your head, basically, doesn't it? It makes it stick in your head more. Um, so amazing that you nailed that because that is, that's exactly basically what she explained to me that finally made me go, oh, okay. I can accept it now. I don't have to keep having these doubts about why are we teaching inductively all the time. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's a key point, and I don't think it just, it, it just stays with learning the language, but it also, for me, goes with classroom management as well. For example, the basic classroom management techniques, when we're talking about teaching kids, would be... Um, you want them to behave good. Oh, we're going to give them candy. You want them to not do bad things. You give them a punishment. It's all external. You know, we're wanting to move away from externalities to inter to something more internal. So, yep. you know, the end goal would be a, a better activity to control classroom management to see how they are uh, to get them to behave better would. For them to see sort of the benefits of what they're doing, so you know, yep. if you give the, if you keep their essays from the beginning of the term and show them at the end of the term how much improvement that they've made, then it starts to become less external to more into. I'm not explaining it very well whatsoever, but the the more. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty. I think it is clear what you're saying, Neil. Um, <clears throat> the um, the trainer. The um, um, what do you call them? Head, the head trainer at the, the British Council in uh, Vietnam, uh, who was um, Lily Kentman. Again, glad to call her out because she's fantastic. Uh, in fact, probably the most uh, intelligent. Um, <laughs> see, I can get into trouble here, can't I? Because I say like she's the most intelligent something, and then other people who've been in that position where I've worked in the past suddenly get very offended, even though I respect them a lot. Let's just say she's a she's brilliant at what she does. And um, she used to call it Pavlovian motivation, what you're talking about, right? Which goes back to the whole Pavlov dog thing, right? Which is like you ring, you, you know, you ring the bell every time the dog eats and then eventually you ring the bell and the dog salivates. Um, so um, it's that idea that, you know, yeah, give them those, give them those lovely cheeky rewards, you know, and it even it you know it even gets to the point because she she was quite 
extreme on this position, more extreme than I am, certainly. But she was of the opinion that, you know, you shouldn't necessarily need, uh, and she probably still is of this opinion, but I don't want to speak for her, that um, you don't necessarily need scoreboards and kids' names on the board and all that stuff. That's still Pavlovian motivation, right? Um, I mean, in the end, in the end, you're wanting them to move away from that. I mean, it's good to begin with, and it's good to get them to start to establish that once you, once they see, you know, what you're doing is for their benefit, and they they see the improvements, they see how it it's changing them, and it's you're do, you're doing you're doing it with the best in mind for them. You know, the thing that they get from your class is. They get they get to become not a better person. <laughs> they get to they get to be they they get to achieve and that that internal feeling of achievement of doing something that you didn't think you could do um, is going to trump everything else. Um, so I'm getting off track, but yeah. Moving away I, I don't know if you are. I don't know if you are getting off, off track. I think it's perfectly valid to talk about reward systems with. Um, he's talking about teaching teaching methods, um, but um, I think um, I think we we maybe a slight. You, you're a little bit more in line with um, Lily as I was talking about there, um, whereas I um, personally I I pull a bit more towards so-called you know pavlovian motivation i'm i'm and i'm comfortable with that i i do agree that the ultimate is you know the students taking their own self um yeah self-evaluation i think that's a more realistic goal with older students and adults um i think to some extent with kids it's almost and especially certain kids you know i think it's almost unavoidable that they are going to derive their value, their motivation from what circumstance you can provide for them, you know. Um, and if you are, you know, <clears throat> like if they are, if they are, you know, they think they're the monkey of the class or they think they're the, the troublesome kid in the class, you know, and you're dealing with like nine-year-olds, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to, you know, make those kids valuable members of society who derive value from their self-improvement. But let's be realistic, you know, at the end of the day, they, you know, they're just going to love to see their name moving up that scoreboard, or you know, um, something that um, I, I'll also talk about in a future time. But um, one of one of the guys, at, um, <clears throat> one of the guys at, at BC uh, Hanoi, um, he had a, um, you know, this idea of loot boxes in video games, which is um, part of the reward of a loot box is you don't know what's in it, and then something happens, right? So he he caught with this dice system. Where um, the, he has a, he has a leaderboard, but um, when you do something good, you don't just get points; you get a dice, right? Or you get a couple of dice. Mm -hmm. So the idea is like you've done something good, great, you've got a dice. You then not only do you get the points, you get the excitement of am I going to get six or am I going to get one? And kids love that. I mean that guy, right? That, uh, there, and I'll name him as well. It's Kevin, right? He's phenomenal. Um, that you know, his primary primary classes, right? He walks into the room. 
pitch in the room because the first the the table that's ready first when he walks into the room mm-hmm. gets the dice roll. Yeah. You know, and and that's it. And they're playing the game, you know. Yeah. And it's Pavlovian all the way, but his behavioral management based on that Pavlovian system works incredibly well. So yeah, I agree. Ultimately be fantastic if everyone, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> has all this self worth and everything. But um I think it's a bit idealistic as well. I it think is, there there are room for other it's systems. Something that I strive for, um and I especially with the kids because I feel like if you can leave them with that. Okay, so here's the biggest, here's the biggest point. I'm, this, I'm gonna finish with this, with the biggest point. Um, I only have, depending on the type of student, I only have an hour with them uh, in whatever class it is and I might not even get personal attention with them. So if I can give them tools uh, to, you know, go out and kind of learn by themselves, that's fantastic. Um, that, that's what I'm kind of aiming for. The, the thing that I think is a bit more realistic that I can do is that I can, uh, engage with them and get them to love English and get them mm. to love the process of, of, of learning it. That, that is, when I do a lesson plan, I have my language point, but in a meta and a more micro way, I'm just trying to get them to enjoy English and love it. Because if, if they love it, then they're going to do it outside of class. And that's where they're going to do the majority of learning. Because I've got yep. an hour. But if I can, if I can instill them in, in them that it's not too big, you can do it. You look, you've been making these little progress. You know, that's, it's going to trump everything. It's going to trump any behavioral management, any system that I come up with, anything that I teach them because. Yeah, you're right. No, I mean, we, we did, even to the extent, I mean, it'll, it'll trump you as being a good or bad teacher even. Yep. I mean, at the end of the day, if you can, if you can do what you're saying, instill, you know, that positivity about English learning, sustainable practice improvement. Um, yeah, it'll it, it, maybe they maybe they have you for one day, and somehow you it broke that in them, and then for the rest of their life they have the worst teacher in the world. They'll still get better. It wouldn't ma- it won't matter anymore because, um, as you say, the majority of work is done outside class. So they can then have teachers who are just writing stuff on the board, uh, pronoun plus um, uh, modal verb plus infinitive. They can literally have, they can literally, well, they will because they might be bored to hell in the lesson, but they'll still go home and they'll go pronoun plus infinitive plus whatever. Okay, I'll now combine that with the fun stuff that that I've kind of got into because of the class I had with teaching Neil. Um, and then it'll become a, and as you say, it's I mean, like uh, the way, if you want to be, we're, we're trying to be the most effective teacher possible. And if you think about it, you can only be as effective as you are in the class for learning the language. So if you focus on learning the language, just learning the language, then that's all they're going to learn. But if you can go in with that big idea of 
I'm going to get them to love English. I'm going to get mm. them to feel like they can make inroads with it outside yeah. of this class. Then you're you're giving them so much more than just you know here's how the present perfect works. I like that a lot, Neil. That the, yeah, the big idea of getting them to love English. Yeah, yeah, fun, absolutely. I think that's cool. Totally. Um, I'm going to have to leave. Uh, I'm going to have to finish up on this because I've got a, a, an engagement. I've got a, a small mm. child that I have to go take care of. Right <laughs> uh, I just I just make a, a, a quick a quick thing a quick comment on that point just before we completely wrap up. There's uh, one that, one of the metaphors that's stuck in my head, and it's something that I've been using a lot. Um, and it relates entirely to what you were saying then about the about the effort. Uh, I've started to say that um, the work that we do in class is uh, is me putting petrol in your engine. That's all it is. And then how far you go, well, that's up to you driving the car outside of class because Ooh, like we're not drive we're not driving the car in class, right? You drive the car. Like you say, the work is done. The all the you know the distance is travelled outside of class because work is done in class. Yeah. But the work that's done in class isn't necessarily you getting very far. It's just giving you the potential, the fuel. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think that's a really good metaphor, uh, and I don't think many students consider that when they start to learn anything. They think, "Oh, I'm going to learn it all in class," and that that's. It's not the case. Yeah. That's yeah. just the, the starting point. <laughs> you, you've got to the start line. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I've got a video on it. Uh, www.youtube.com's Professor Rich. <laughs> yeah, and if you want to see any more of uh, myself, uh, my wife, and all our stuff, we've got www.teamteacherchina.com. But most of our videos are up on YouTube as Team Teacher China. Um, I thought that was I thought that was a, a great interview, and I'm looking forward to next week where we get to put the spotlight onto Professor Rich and um, get into his background. 